Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Have you ever heard a celebrity say, I'm saving it for my memoirs? Well, this is what they're saving it for, baby. For us to read and for us to regurgitate it to you. No one ever wrote a memoir expecting anyone to read it right off the page. And so we're here doing the unintended garbage work, reading off the page, so that you guys can do the fun work listening to the saved information. I love that. I'll take it. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) If you didn't hear last week, you're hearing it now. I just wanted to say, if you guys want to come see us live, Dallas, Austin, Portland, Seattle, and New York City, please, please, please buy your tickets right now. LA sold out in a week. The last time we did a New York show, it sold out in two days. I think that this is one of those things that right now it feels so far away, but when it comes up, you'll be like, oh my God, I forgot that I bought that thing for myself. I forgot that I have like a fun thing coming up. Also, we will be doing meetups beforehand so that you can meet other worms in your communities. Oh my God. Speaking of worms of the community, in case you missed it last week, we are launching a CNBC community book club. What is it called? Yeah, I guess the... Community Book Club? The Celebrity Memoir Book Club Book Club. Yeah, Celebrity Memoir Book Club Book Club. We will be reading Crying in H Mart, and the meeting is February 8th. If you want to read along, join the Geneva. The meeting will be happening in Geneva, and then also there will be reading along and conversations happening in Geneva. So there's a link in our show notes to join Geneva, which is like our conversation den a bit of a den for conversation. And then there will also be a link if you want to join for the breakout discussions. There'll be a Google form to sign up for the book club. I'm so excited. I can't wait to build this out with you guys and hear what you think and what you want and really create something around you guys getting to read books and talking about it amongst yourselves. Yeah. Claire, speaking of creating, discovering, learning, what have you created, discovered, learned in this last week that you would maybe write about in your memoir? I have created a hole. I have discovered I hate being in that hole and I've learned I need to get out of that hole before I die. Okay, elaborate. I am at war with the IRS. Damn. I am just like covered in anxiety in a way that I not normally am. I woke up at 6.30 a.m. this morning. It's a Saturday. I woke up at 6.30 a.m. just sick to my stomach about the IRS. That happens to me every day. Join the club. That's every bullshit. No, shut up. Because you have an accountant dad. I, I wake you, up and I say, the IRS. No, you have an accountant dad. You have no idea what I'm going through. You have never in your life had to do your own taxes. You have never in your life had to wonder, did I do my taxes wrong? And will I randomly be penalized forever by the IRS? That's true. So check your privilege. (laughs) But I do call him sometimes at random and I say, you got to tell your boys at the IRS that they're doing a bad thing for society. And he goes, I don't know them and I don't like them that much either. What happened to me was in 2018, I made very little money. And I did my taxes as I thought I was supposed to. I tried my hardest and I'm not a stupid person. I did my fucking best. Randomly, a year later, they said, you did it wrong. And we think you owe us $3,000. And I said, last year, I made less than 40K. There's no way I owe you that much money. And I got very stressed. And then I had to, out of my own pocket, pay somebody to check it for me. And it turned out I was right. So I've now paid money to tell the IRS that they were wrong in telling me I was wrong. And I just kind of think it's fucked that I like fell for a trap that they put there for me. They make taxes hard on purpose. I fell for it because they wanted me to fail. I didn't even fail that bad. They're penalizing me for no reason. I had to pay to defend myself. And nevertheless, I think they're sending the money I owe them to collections, even though I don't owe it to them. And so now it'll affect my credit score. And I'm very panicked right now because I'm trying to move in February. I took a page out of Ashley's book and it sounds ridiculous, but I'm in this weird situation where it's like, I need my 2022 tax information to prove that I do in fact have an income, even though I'm self-employed. And I need that before the collections gets wind of this faulty 
accusation against me and my credit is destroyed so that I can move. I think there's like going to be four days of downtime where I can hopefully slide in there. It's like a bureaucratic race against the clock and they are literally, there's just like four people pushing an envelope very slowly and you're hoping that it, yes. one envelope gets there faster. <laughs> literally, I feel like I'm watching a baby race at the, like a halftime show of the WNBA and all of those babies are like my financial future. <laughs> The worst part is that I actually filed a counter complaint or whatever, but they're like, it'll take us four to six months to read this. But I'm like, oh, but it'll only take you 60 days to send my problem to collection. Like, I don't understand the differentials. I just am very stressed out right now and I don't know how to get past it. And the fact that it's so out of my control, you can't call the IRS. There are no human beings back there. I feel nauseous. I'm just very overwhelmed right now. I don't think that there are any human beings at the IRS at all. I think that the IRS is Monsters, Inc., I feel like every time I think about the IRS, I'm like, it's Roz. And and I know it's ridiculous, but it's really getting to me. I'm really underwater here. And it's just so fucking mean what they're doing to me. I'm not the problem. I happily pay my taxes all the time. I never complained about taxes because I love roads. Famously. I complain about taxes all the time because I love roads, but I hate war. I hate war too, but that's just... (laughs) It's just par for the course in this godforsaken country. First, we have to stop the wars and then we have to stop the credit score. And then we have to stop the potholes. Anyway, so that's where I'm at. And it's I'm at a point where I can see that the stress I'm feeling is unreasonable, but I, I don't know how to stop it physically. I can think I shouldn't be this upset, but I don't know what to do about the pit in my stomach and the fact that I can't breathe. <laughs> sure. Okay. So that's where I'm at. Anyway, what about you? How are you, Ashley? How was this week? What was the chapter? Okay. I would call this week's chapter, I was right. Moving did solve all my problems. I would love to move, but the IRS. So I have been four, three or four days in my new apartment on the ground floor. And I feel like a weight has been lifted off of my body. I The other day I wore chunky shoes because I was like, I'm not going to have to worry about wearing these fucking ankle weights up five flights of stairs. Like I am so happy to be able to just like give Bug the life she deserves. I'm, she's so happy. I'm so happy. That's all I have to say this week is that here's one thing I'll say <laughs> is that I... I'm so happy in my new apartment. And I remember talking mad shit about my old apartment in the last couple months because I've just been like, this is a dumpster fire and I hate it here. But I was remembering yesterday that when I first moved into my old apartment, I was over the moon and I loved it so much. So I just want to give a little respect to my old apartment for serving me well. You are an angel of your time. And I'm sorry, things couldn't work out between us, but I'm so happy in my new apartment. And that's, that's where I am this week. Should we get on to this week's memoirist? I would love to, you guys. We are doing back-to-back iconic Brits. Is that what we're calling her? <laughs> She's an expat. She's Emily in Paris. An- back-to-back iconic expats. <laughs> um, this week we are covering Lily Collins. Emily in Paris, some might know her as. Or Phil Collins's daughter. Or you may know her as the older sister in The Blind Side. Lily Collins, Lily Jane Collins, I should call her, is currently 33 years old. She was born March 18th, 1989. And this book came out in 2017 when she wrote it when she was 28. Let that put some things into perspective. She had not yet gone to Paris. I mean, as Emily. (laughs) Yeah, but that's very important. So this book is called Unfiltered, No Shame, No Regrets, Just Me. And the cover, which I think is really important, Features Lily Collins in a white button-up and cuffed jeans, shoeless, cross-legged, head in hand. And it really feels like a pose and a art direction 
that I've only ever seen done by like beautiful 65 year olds. Do you know what I mean? Like this is Jane Fonda doing a magazine cover. That's like Jane Fonda behind the leg workout. It's very Nancy Myers. It's very Nancy Myers. I feel like this is a pose that Gwyneth Paltrow has been like waiting to do for her like no makeup and 61 photo shoot. It's like this is a, the exact art direction when you're like, I want to feel real, raw, just me. It's very shabby chic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they like photoshopped out some shiplap. Yeah. She was on the beach on linen. Oh, wait. They did not photo. She's literally on like a white wooden boardwalk. Yeah, but inside. To me, she's very beachy, shabby chic and that I feel like she's doing a dinner party in Southampton on the beach. I feel like there was a couple different outfits that they went with. And then this is the one that she showed up in. And they were like, unexpectedly, what if we just grabbed a photo of you in the outfit you showed up in before we put you in like the sparkly dress that we were going to do the photo shoot in? Because her eye makeup is still quite smoky and she still has like a red lip. I guess I'm deeply confused by the haircut they've put her in. (laughs) It looks like someone, she had like a perfect bob and someone mussed her hair like she's a child and was like, get over here, you scamp. (laughs) It looks like the haircut you give a kid after they get gum in their hair. (laughs) You're like, I know it's not what anybody would have picked, but like this is, we had to work around something. Okay, so despite what that sounds like, we didn't hate this book. (laughs) I like this book. Claire liked it a lot more than I did. I know. And I didn't hate it. I can't believe it. But the more I think about it, the more I like it. To me, this book gave me everything that I ask for in all the books, which is honesty, vulnerability, self-awareness, and growth. Yes. I think it had all of those things. And at first, I was like, look, it wasn't bad. It was as good as Lily Collins could do. And that's all you can ask of anybody. But the more I think about it, I'm like, I know some 14-year-old girls. Well, not personally, but I I know the idea of some 14-year-old girls that I think would read this book and benefit from it. I think if you read this book as the thing you read when you're too old for Highlights Magazine, do you know what I mean? It's very, if you read Seventeen Magazine and thought they had great tips for how to do your hair for prom, then you would also like this Lily Collins book and probably get something from it. This is like a book that you read after you've read, like you're too old to read the American Girl Doll, My Body and Me book, but you need a book about your body and you. But I will say it's like a little bit eye-rolly because she is still like a beautiful celebrity. Yeah, no, I would say this is a perfect book for a girl whose problems are completely just being a teenage girl and, you know, not structural, not poverty, not health, not... Like, if you are somebody whose big problem is that you don't like your handwriting, this would be very eye-opening for you. And I, as that girl, as a girl who didn't have any real external problems, I still was sad for myself. And I think this would have given me the confidence to embrace my quirks. Yeah, I will say this book to me felt like a lot of celebrity media happens via press junkets and red carpet interviews. So like a press junket is when a project is coming out. They'll put every media outlet that has been given credentials to this press junket in a cubicle or a different room in a hotel or a different section of a giant banquet hall or something. And then the people being interviewed from that project will go place to place like speed dating and they'll get three to eight minutes with each interviewer to ask all the questions that need to be asked about this project. And it's very rapid fire. They don't have a lot of time. And this feels like she was asked a couple of questions that she was like, man, I really have a bit more to say about that. This is where me and Ashley differ because I feel like this book came from a place of she had a conversation with a friend's little sister one time and thought, wow, what if I could talk to all the little sisters in the world? I feel like it's similar in that she just realized, wow, they're asking me this question and it's going to be a pull quote and I don't want it to be a pull quote. I think that there's a lot here. And then there was some there, more than a pull quote's worth, but not a book's worth. I 
I disagreed. I kind of think that this is all it needed to be. I think for a certain audience, this would have done exactly its job. And I kind of stand by it. It's not one of those books that I'm like, this should never have existed. But I don't think that many people would be like, that book saved me or helped me or did anything for me. I wonder who even bought it. I wonder who bought it. Besides us. I guess I, I disagree. I do think that there is a real group of girls who, you know, didn't make varsity lacrosse their freshman year and are feeling bad about themselves. There's a lot of girls who switched schools in seventh grade and got their period on the first day and don't know what to do. And I think this was helpful for them. I guess. If, if you are one of those girls, write in. The thing I'll say about it is I don't think any of it was offensive, but I like don't really know why it's there. And I still feel like when I was an awkward teenager, being told to just embrace my quirks and everything's going to be cool by a pretty famous girl with a famous dad. I know she has problems. Now I'm looking at it as an adult being like, I can see that this could help someone. But I think in my younger self, I would have been like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) I don't know. I I guess I do see that someone could have read this and be like, even a famous actress feels the way I feel, I guess I'm not so alone. Like I do think she does a good job in making you go, whoa, you're regular as shit. (laughs) You're like, wow, a celebrity would never have these problems. And then you're like, why do you have these problems? You shouldn't have these. Wow. Like if you ever thought that being skinnier or being famous or being richer would fix your 14 year old girl problems, this book really shows you that they would not have. (laughs) The first chapter is called the quirky things that make you different are what make you beautiful. And I will say a lot of the chapters have a real mouthful of a title and they are all preceded by a poll quote that I don't know where it really came from. It's just like a thing she says. So this one says, standing out in a crowd is much more rewarding than blending in. The chapter title, the quirky things that make you different are what make you beautiful. The pull quotes and the chapter titles are the same amount of words as the chapters. (laughs) The pull quotes are less pull quotes and more when you Google a book and then you get a certain random paragraph that you're allowed to read on Google Books. And there's no reason to why they picked that paragraph, but they're just like, here, we'll show you a little piece of this book. That's what the pull quotes feel like. Like somebody went through at random and picked a couple of sentences and said, put this in the first page. That'll buy us 20 more pages. Yeah. So this chapter is obviously about her eyebrows and how she says that they've always stood out. Thin eyebrows used to be in, but when thin eyebrows were in, she didn't really know that much about it. (laughs) And then she says when she was in middle school, she was like really embarrassed by her eyebrows. So she plucked them. And then her mom was like, you look insane. And she was like, oh my God, my mom was so right. So she waits for them to grow back and eventually they do. And she realizes the things that make you different make you beautiful. Browgate definitely taught me an important lesson. I'd let other kids' negative comments affect me, and then I'd let my insecurities lead me to alter my appearance and make a big mistake, which was exactly why my mom was upset. She taught me the mantra, the quirky things that make you different are what make you beautiful. Different shouldn't be considered a bad thing. Different is beautiful. And now they've become her signature feature. People even ask to touch them. That's scary. (laughs) She says... Now people sometimes are mean to her about her eyebrows on the internet. And she says, there's only one of each of us in this world. So all those quirks that define us are special things that should be embraced, never pushed away. And then she goes on to be like, another one of my weird quirks is that I love talking to adults more than kids. And I'm like, whoa, you are a real only child of an older mom. (laughs) I think her mom was 40 when she had her. And then you'll see later, her dad basically abandoned her. And a lot of these qualities that she's like, that's just quirky about me. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. These were just coping mechanisms. Also, these were like the people you knew. You weren't being like socialized with children. Yeah, you had never been around a child before. She tells a story about going up to a 30-year-old at a roller coaster and asking to sit next to him at the roller coaster because she thought he was cute. And she's like, people may think that that's embarrassing, but that's just me. I'm an extrovert. And I like that about myself. I'm happy that you like that about you. 
She has a lot of photos in this book and they're photos that are the quality of your personal MySpace photos. This whole book has real MySpace energy, except for it came out in 2017 when MySpace was long dead. So tell me why she has a duck lip selfie of her wearing a t-shirt that says freak. I guess I've noticed via Instagram and Pinterest and whatever that hot girls love the word freak a lot. Like conventionally attractive, but like kind of goofy girls love to be like, I'm a fucking freak, but not in like a sex way. Like if you were like, oh my, do you mean like in a kink way? They'd be like, what? No. Oh my God. What? <laughs> Let your freak flag fly. Yeah. <laughs> and you should. I mean, so far, so true. I mean, this is an intro to the book. I will say as like someone who was a very awkward teenager, I feel like watching someone who is like conventionally attractive and then became a model and an actress at 16, I would be like, stop talking about your eyebrows. I don't care about your eyebrows. And like, I get that this is her experience and is valid, but I'm like, okay, (laughs) what thing makes you different? And she like also later in the book talks about moving to Los Angeles at six years old with a British accent. And she's like, everyone made fun of me. And I'm like, everyone likes that. People like made fun of you and it it, like made you the center of attention, which was like fun. It's a bit eye rolly to me. (laughs) Okay. So then she has this chapter called when someone shows you who they are, believe them. And the pull quote is, I will never need anyone to complete me. I am enough on my own. So this is where she opens up about being in a very toxic and abusive relationship. And this chapter, I think, is really honest. And I know that she needed to get this out. And I think it's one of those things where she has like been obviously on a very lengthy healing journey. She has you know, a bad relationship with her dad. She's been in several bad relationships with men. I think she had a little bit of a complex relationship with her mom. And like, this is something that she was like, now that I'm through this tunnel, I need to turn back and help other people through the tunnel. And I really, I like that about her. And I also think the way she writes it is quite clear and straightforward and accessible and relatable. I think she really breaks down what it's like to be in your late teens, early 20s, and accidentally find yourself in one of these all-encompassing, emotionally abusive relationships. I feel like everything she said were things that I was like, yeah, that is what I experienced. And I don't know if it would have saved me necessarily, but I think if I had been younger and reading it through her lens, it is so relatable and digestible that I do think it could kind of loosen some grasps. Yeah, I think that one of the lines I liked the most is her introducing the relationship And talking about how she fell in with this guy, she says, whenever anyone with a position of any kind of power, real or imagined, chooses you over everyone else, it's natural to get caught up in that. And I think especially clarifying real or imagined is so good and true because most people, especially if they are on a level to date you, probably have like an imagined power for the most part. It's like you meet them in a social situation where you think they're very cool or interesting or in a career that has value. Like the freshman girl in high school dating the senior guy. Right. You're like, oh my God, he's so important. He's a senior in high school. But actually being a senior in high school is not a particularly powerful place to be. Exactly. (laughs) And so, and obviously there are like real positions of power that are wielded over people. But when you like really break down those structures, a lot of times it's like made up and people will make you feel stupid for that. And that's not fair. Like even if there is an imagined power there, falling for it is so natural. It's awful when your relationship doesn't feel right, but instead of trusting your instincts, you decide that something's wrong with you and it would be easier to blame yourself. Everything is fine. He's fine. I'm fine. He's right. I'm wrong. I made a mistake. It's my fault. The pain wasn't obvious to me at first. I was completely caught up in him and us in the honeymoon bliss phase. She talks about being slowly stripped away from all of her friendships and relationships and being pulled away from her family. And at the end, 
I became scared that if I left him, I would have nothing and be nothing. She also says, he once wrote that he didn't know what he'd do without me and that it scared him. What the hell is a girl supposed to do when she reads that? Of course, there was a sense of security knowing that I was the one he needed, that there was something about me that made him feel safe and loved. But immense uneasiness also came with it. I felt hypocritical because on the one hand, I did want all this attention from him. Yet when he came on so strong, I felt scared and claustrophobic and out of control. Still, I loved him and I couldn't see myself without him. So I ignored the red flags and passed them off as things that would fix themselves. I was still trying to convince myself that I could change him. I thought that I could make him less angry, less demanding, less abusive by being a better girlfriend. She says that he would make her doubt everything she did because he was always yelling at her and judging what she weared and all of her decisions. Everything I did was inappropriate, a word that still haunts me to this day. He yelled at me, calling me horrible things like dumb, blind, stupid, selfish, and a whore. I was made to feel unworthy, less than, and frankly, like a piece of shit. He silenced my voice, and she said she started having a panic attacks. Whenever she saw him, they would just isolate themselves. He cut off all her relationships with her friends. Even my relationship with my own mom, which means the world to me, was challenged. I became a one-woman island, but not the strong and independent kind. I was the definition of codependent. And then she talks about why she put up with it, because this is a question a lot of people have when they're assholes. Why did you stay? He acted as if his cruelty had never happened, as if I'd blown everything out of proportion. Or he'd simply apologize over and over again. And this feels like very true to experiences that I've had and seen where you finally stand up for yourself and someone's like, what are you talking about? I didn't even say that. And that's not what I meant when I said that. So she says at one point, the verbal threats escalated and signs of physical violence started to show. They have a fight. And in the middle, she says, his hand reached out and closed around my neck. Part of me feels strange even calling it choking because I can't imagine this person doing such a thing. Yet it felt extremely threatening. I think even that sentence, that idea of like, you don't want to call it what it was because that just can't be right. It's the cognitive dissonance of somebody crossing that line. Like you can't bear it yet. So you won't call it what it is. And then she says she didn't want to reach out to people and expose what had really been going on and get him in trouble. I also didn't want them to think less of me for being in that situation. So finally, her mom is like, why don't you talk to this friend of mine's daughter who's been in this kind of relationship before? And she says they talked for hours, shared experiences. And the woman said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. With that simple statement, originally coined by Maya Angelou, it all clicked. I will say she then goes on to be like, my friend's phrase. And I'm like, okay, well, not. She has a couple mantras in this book that she pulls from people that are either just already famous quotes or more convoluted versions of very famous quotes. Something about coined by Maya Angelou. I'm sure that's exactly the right word to say, but there is something she didn't trademark oxyclean. She didn't like because <laughs> then she later is like my friend's mantra: believe people when they show you who they are. I'm like, okay, but you know it wasn't your friend's mantra. Anyway, so they break up, and then she goes. However, and I know many of you will be in absolute shock when I say this. He convinced me after we spent time apart that we should talk it all through face to face, and they got back together. So this is something about Lily Collins is that even though she learned when someone shows you who they are, believe them, she always wants to believe that someone is going to show you someone different. She really will give a lot of chances to people, which I find just really endearing. I don't know. She is a fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Fool, you're going to fool Lily Collins 100 times. <laughs> and it's just because she's a really sweet person <laughs> to the point where you feel ridiculous taking candy from a baby. <laughs> I feel like if you fooled her thrice, shame she on. will be fooled again. <laughs> if you fooled her thrice, you're not done fooling her. She's got six or seven more fools left because she wants you to stop being such a fool. She also says that when they got back together, the uncertainty became normal and furthermore comfortable. As sick as it may sound during the good times, I started believing that no one would love me as strongly as him or treat me as well. This I've come to learn is what psychological manipulation looks like at its finest. I think that's so true. The amount of times 
I've been in that situation. I know friends have been in that situation who are like, in the worst relationship you've ever seen. And they're just like, this could be the best I ever had. And you're like, this is the worst. <laughs> this is bad. How do you think this is as good as it could get? This is a really bad situation. You'd be lucky if no one ever loved you the way you're being loved right now. I mean, we are in a society where literally being in a partnership is valued above almost everything else. The way that I've seen friends and family and people say literally to me, like I was talking about not liking a friend of mine's partner. And someone very close to me who I love a lot and I know loves me said, but at least they have someone. And I was like, I don't think that that's good. I think to have someone who doesn't treat you well is worse than having no one. Sue me. She's right that people don't act like that. I've been thinking a lot about like right person at the wrong time and how I don't believe in it because I think that if it was the right person at the wrong time, then it was the wrong person because they were a different person at that time. And if you look at who they are now, and think like, well, I would have liked to marry that person. That's not who you were dating. Like you you were dating the wrong person at the right time for you. So you have to go find a different person. And later they became a good person. But if you were meant to be together, you would have been. If they wanted to be the person that they were going to become with you, they like could have done that, but they didn't think that they could become the person they were meant to become with you. Yeah. And I feel the same way of like, you know, there's a give and a pull. I'm not saying you got to fucking get your pension and then you can look around and be like, well, things are settled. Who do I want to marry? But I do think the opposite of that cap theory is the idea of meeting someone you like and then building your whole life around them and preparing for things because of them. And I I don't know why that's better. I think that's a trap that gets women stuck in the sunk cost fallacy of like, well, I've already been with him for four years, so we have to make this work. And it's like, I don't know, man, make you work. So then she, you know, learns that she shouldn't have given him another chance when someone shows you who they are, believe them. She also says this that I feel like is very helpful. My gut told me many times that the situation wasn't right, but I kept convincing myself that it was me who needed to work harder at the relationship so that he wouldn't doubt me, be angry with me or tell me off. And I think that that's another common thing I see in relationships where it's obviously bad. And the woman is like, well, if I just try harder and it's like, no, you're trying as hard at some point, you shouldn't be running a fucking marathon. Like a relationship should not be an all out sprint forever. (laughs) A relationship is work. Like you have to constantly like communicate and whatever to be on the same page, but you shouldn't be like walking up a sand hill. There is no top. Anyway, she says no relationship is greater than the one I have with myself. And I need to just trust my gut, follow my instincts. And when someone shows me who they are, believe them. A big theme in this book is her learning to trust and love herself before like giving someone the power to make herself worthy of love. I guess that's why I feel very, not defensive, but on Emily's side, on Lily Collins's side, because I think a chapter like that actually would have helped a lot of teenage girls or college girls who, if you watched Emily in Paris now and really related to her and thought, oh, she's so pretty and skinny and had a perfect wedding and it just comes so easily for her and I just have to take what I can get relationship-wise, like it's such a common experience. And a lot of us fall into those exact mindsets And I've been there and she puts it so clearly and frankly that I find it very accessible and helpful. So I will actually go on that limb and say I found a lot of this book to be potentially helpful to people. I think that's just like where we're different is I think that there were like two to three chapters that I find helpful and the rest of it, I'm just like, okay. (laughs) Love will find you again and you can never ever change yourself for anyone or change yourself to fix the relationship. So if it isn't healthy, say goodbye. (laughs) Put that on a mug. (laughs) (laughs) Embroider that on a throw pillow. (laughs) This is a chapter about ghosting. A lot of these are like wine mom t-shirts, but on a 16-year-old girl. That's what this book is so weird. It has the like platitudes of a Facebook boomer, (laughs) but they're coming through like 
They're four children. It's coming through like someone who wants to become an Instagram life coach and is like, I don't want to steal quotes from other Instagram life coaches. I'm going to make up ones that haven't been said before, but then they're just like saying the exact same thing in way more words and hoping that someone reshares it. So now we have a chapter that really brings Lily Collins down to earth. If you thought she had it all figured out. Let me tell you, nobody has been ghosted more than Lily Collins by the same person. Okay, this is a very funny intro to the chapter. She goes, I'm the first to admit that I'm completely obsessed with magic. She talks a little bit how much she loves magic trick. And then she goes, the trick I'm talking about also goes by the name of ghosting, if that's more familiar to you. This was an unnecessary segue. You could have just started talking about ghosting to be like, I love a magic show, but not when a boy is mean to me. And that's the magic. <laughs> She talks about a couple of times where she's been ghosted. And she's like, have you ever been ghosted? Well, I've been ghosted by the same person twice. And you're like, Lily, she is so sweet in that she's always trying to do the right thing. And that's what I love about her. So she'll like date this guy and then he ghosts her and then she'll see him on the street and be like, that was so mean what you did to me. And he'll be like, I'm really sorry. I'll explain it all later. And she'll be like, okay, I'll meet you for coffee. And then she'll be like, can you believe when I showed up for coffee to hear his explanation for why he ghosted me? He never showed up. And then two years later, we saw each other at a party. So I talked to him again and he said that he had an explanation. So we met for drinks and then we started dating again because I think that he had changed. And then he ghosted me again. And it's like, Lily. There's a couple times where she wants to have a tough conversation with somebody and the guy will go, okay, let's meet up for drinks later and have this tough conversation. And she's like, I can't believe he never came. And I'm like, yeah, he didn't want to have that conversation. He was lying to you, Lily. He never intended to show up. I can't believe you believed him. I can't believe you thought a man who didn't respect you enough to break up with you normally would then respect you enough to sit and have a bad conversation with you face to face. And then she talks about how unfair it is that like a guy will get the chance to say what he wants to say, but she doesn't get the chance to say it back. If he writes a text being like, I don't want to talk anymore or like, I think we should break up. And then she'll respond and be like, but then he ghosted me. And it's like, well, he didn't really ghost you. He broke up with you and then didn't give you the dignity of a breakup conversation. He just said, I'm breaking up with you the end. And you didn't get to say your piece too. But We've talked about this a lot. You and I both don't believe in closure. No. Like, what was he going to say? Be like, no, what? You're right. I'm wrong. I'm an idiot. You're too good for me. And that's why this relationship can't work. Like, what What could he have said back to your paragraph that would have made it feel right? She's like a little cartoon mouse who's always like, I don't know. I just find her so sweet because she means it. She's always just trying her hardest. And I like love that about her. Another thing she does is when she like wants to be really like writerly and essayish about a topic, she'll like weave a bunch of things together because she'll be like, well, this is a genius through line. And then you're like, the things aren't really connected though. She talks about another breakup where the guy she was dating just like wouldn't really listen to her. Like she would talk, but he wasn't hearing her. No active listening was happening in this situation. And she's like, another situation that is ghost-like. I was like a ghost and he couldn't hear or see me. <laughs> and it's like, well, that is just like a different thing. But I'm sorry you went through it. If you'll notice, there's a definite pattern here. The second I called all these guys on their shit or stood up for myself and expressed my feelings, they fled. It's like they couldn't handle being confronted. And instead of being mature and having a rational conversation, they defaulted to silence. Well, their silence spoke volumes. Listen, there is a pattern here. 
she's sort of on the money with like, yeah, when you stand up for yourself, they don't want to deal with you. But I don't 100% think it's just that like they don't like strong women. They just didn't like you that much to begin with. And the minute it wasn't worth their time, they didn't put in the time. But maybe they don't like strong women. And- yeah, maybe they don't. But it seems like she was getting ghosted even before she was standing up to them. They just didn't ever care that much. And then you couldn't demand that they care. I feel like this chapter gets really convoluted. She does go on to say like, if it isn't healthy, say goodbye, stay true to who you are. And if the true you is someone like me, who wants to use her voice and face things head on, then eventually the right person will come along who respects that confrontation and finds it empowering, attractive, and sexy. Like, that is true. But it just, like, the way she weaves there, I'm just like, okay, Lily. Yeah, I guess, like, even here, I'm like, the right person wouldn't have ghosted you to begin with. So this idea that the right person will respect when you find them at a party randomly and say, how come you just blew me off and never explained yourself? They wouldn't have done that in the first place. Like, the first ghosting, shame on them. The second ghosting, shame on you. I know. The person who ghosted you once was not going to be respectful the second time. Anyway, she's married now. I'm happy for her. He's cute. She had a wedding that was a real Instagram fave. She did a cape. Oh, good for her. She did like a little red riding hood, but bridal. She made a real partner Nepo baby. That's good. They get each other. I really like that for her. I will say in their family, I think she's the Nepo baby. I bet he'd be like, I'm not even a Nepo baby because she's such one. No, I think he's more of a Nepo baby than she is because she doesn't even know her dad. (laughs) (laughs) She, I think, got in the door from being Bill Collins's daughter. But like he did acting for a little bit, but he is known as a musician. Whereas this guy, I think, failed at a couple of things and then became like a writer slash director and has done two projects. And both of his parents are very prolific actors. And then his mom married Ted Danson, who we've heard of. I don't know. I think that like that's way more Nepo Baby to have done like two things. I guess we're we're defining it differently. To me, it's how famous is the parent and to you, it's how aligned are you and following their footsteps. I guess to you, it's how famous is the parent. And to me, it's like how much do I genuinely think the parent like actively made phone calls to get you to where you are? I think you're underestimating how connected her mom was because her mom also went to Harvard Westlake. Anyway, phone in. I'd love to hear you guys' opinions on that. Look them both up on Wikipedia and let us know who's more of a Nepo baby. We'll put it on Instagram. (laughs) Okay. So there is a greater happiness to be attained. The happiness of enjoying myself to the fullest during the one life I have and accepting myself for who I am. I can't breathe when I say these. My battle for perfection. Okay. So to me, this is another good chapter. In this chapter, she talks about her eating disorder. Yeah, this is one that I won't say I like because I don't feel like it's good to be like, I really loved this chapter where she opens up about hurting herself. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) I'm going to print it out and read it at my wedding. I found this to be a really honest and well-written chapter about eating disorders. Trigger warning. I just felt like it really aligned with what I've experienced in terms of eating disorders. She talks about initially that anxiety slash euphoria that you get from working out where you feel so anxious if you don't have time to work out. And as soon as you make time for a workout that day, you like feel a sense of relief. What you're doing is fighting your body. Sad as it sounds, I've reveled in this obsessive way of thinking. I started to look more like how I thought I needed to look in front of the camera while also numbing my feelings about everything else going on in my life. Exercise became a form of self-medication. So I don't want to read too many quotes from this chapter, but essentially this is what I found very true is I think a lot of times anorexia and bulimia and various eating disorders are kind of represented by one behavior. They'll be like, oh, this person stopped eating. That was anorexia. This person started purging their food. That is bulimia. I think a lot of people that I know with eating disorders, like start with one 
moderately disordered behavior and just start adding on to the pile of the things you do. So she would exercise obsessively. She would limit her caloric intake. She took diet pills. She would purge her food if she like accidentally ate more than she intended to. She was addicted to diet pills and laxatives. Yeah. So I think it's like the slow piling on of all of these behaviors in conjunction with each other that then you all of a sudden realize you're like, oh, this is a huge problem. And then to compare this chapter to say a Portia de Rossi who we felt was just a pride guide to being anorexic, that would have been deeply triggering. I feel like this one really did not glamorize it at all. And you left it being like, oh God, that sucked. She says, eating was no longer a fun social event, but instead a chore and a punishment. I was exhausted and antsy and bitchy all the time. I sure as hell wasn't much fun, but my plan was working. I was in control. I was skinny. And at that time, that's what mattered to me. She just talks about her nails and hair getting brittle her esophagus burning, being afraid that she had ruined her fertility forever after she lost her period. But then also being too afraid to go have herself checked out because she was afraid of what doctors would say. Her body was starting to shut down. She goes, the longer I put it off, the longer my denial could continue and the more perfection I could attain. I was afraid of getting fat, of no longer having the perfect image. I knew that I had a major problem, that there was a better way to live my life, but I couldn't stop. And even worse, I didn't want to. And at one point, her school guidance counselors, they were like, she can't come back to school until she has a doctor's note saying that she weighs a certain amount. And the doctor gave her the note. The toxic fat phobia in eating disorder understanding, which is this idea that just because you're not skinny enough for it to be dangerous, like, no, the mindset is the danger. That's like a, where was your starting weight question? That doesn't have anything to do with the actual disease itself. And that's really fucked up. If you think a teenage girl is showing signs of an eating disorder and be like, well, come back when you're really skinny. Also to be like, oh, this teenage girl is showing severe signs of an eating disorder. Let's weigh her and check. Yeah. That's crazy. It's so crazy. And also because there's often so many other factors that go into it, like control and the idea that there's just a number on a scale that dictates whether or not you're safe. She clearly was not. Somebody should have sat down and been like, how are we going to retool her life and get her in therapy and get her help? And she says this, there was no real maintenance program for me, no moderation. It was all or nothing, black or white. And then she talks about her mom finding out years later how hard she'd suffered with an eating disorder when she found all the diet pills and laxatives hidden in her room, just like random wrappers and things like that. And she says she took it personally as if she hadn't paid enough attention, but really I had done such a good job of lying and hiding it, hiding my pain, hiding my ways of dealing with it and hiding myself. So we went back and forth on this. I obviously don't think anyone is to blame for her eating disorder. Part of the eating disorder, like part of the like intoxication of it is thinking you're doing a good job of hiding it. But like no teenage girl is that good at hiding anything. But I will say as a mother, if the school calls you and says, we're this worried, go get her weighed. She says the addiction went on until her early 20s when her mom found out. Yeah. So clearly there wasn't much of an intervention at that point. I don't like really want to blame her mom for that. But I wanted to say this part where she talks about the crux of her problem No one feels perfect all the time. It's natural to have days where you look in the mirror and want to alter what you see, but taking it out on your body and punishing yourself is not the answer. No good came from lying and skinny was not what I actually wanted. I wanted to feel in control of my insanely busy life and I wanted to feel happy and content within my own skin. So this is what I think a parent should have recognized and it makes me feel sad that she didn't have anyone in her life who noticed this in her, that she was so stressed out and busy at 16 years old that she was killing herself. Because that is something that you should see. This is what we always say about child actors. It's like, yeah, maybe she said she wanted it. Maybe it was her idea to like first start going out and auditioning or trying to become a model or whatever. But if you see your kid become so 
stressed out over this that they cannot function in their body stop them yeah later in the book she talks about how hard it was to be constantly rejected from modeling and i think she doesn't directly put that in this chapter but her mom must have seen that she was getting rejected from modeling gigs and in response not eating yeah and then to hear from a school oh we're worried that she's an eating disorder maybe take her out of the profession that promotes an eating disorder nobody has to be a 16 year old model i also think and this is what i was gonna say not that i blame her mom but i the question of how much did her mom know? Maybe she didn't know about the laxatives and the diet pills, but I think growing up in the 90s and 2000s, diet culture was so prevalent that it, to me, it's not so much did her mom realize she was losing weight and being unhealthy or did her mom just like not know to call those things unhealthy because so much of eating disorders, I feel like in our generation, was learned from our parents. Her mom probably saw that she had very specific and strict eating habits. She talks about how her mom was only allowed to make two or three meals. That's all Lily would eat, that she knew the calorie counts of everything. And I think if you're a parent, recognize that your daughter's only eating very specific things. That should be a clue. But instead, I'm sure she was just like, oh yeah, that's like normal. That's healthy. That's We're all on a diet. Yeah. Healing is an ongoing process and I will be working through my disorders for the rest of my life. But I know now that there is a greater happiness to be attained in this world. The happiness of enjoying myself to the fullest during the one life I have and accepting myself for who I am while living it. I like this book because I do think she constantly recognizes that you never get to the other side of an eating disorder, that it is a lifelong process that you always have to be aware of. Well, we'll get to this later, but this is why her decision to do to the bone rubs me the wrong oh, way. Oh, I agree. Because she has this acknowledgement early on that I'm like, yes, totally. And then she does something that I'm like, why did you do that? I'm just comparing it to like a Portia de yeah. Rossi, where I think Portia de Rossi is like, I'm perfectly healthy now. I don't even work out. I only walk and run and swim and dance every day for eight hours. But I'm done with my eating disorder. I beat it. I'm over it. That was boring. Anyway, the next chapter is just a love letter to her mom. She loves her mom. And then we have this chapter. This is one of the ones that I liked, not in a way where I'm like, oh, I'm glad this was written, but in a way where it's endearing because she's such a fucking cornball. She says, forever can be a beautiful thing. There's something so powerful about the way tattoos capture a moment in time for us to always remember. That's the pull quote. It's a chapter about the story behind all of her tattoos. She's like really into the fact that she has tattoos and all of them have meaning. They're all from actually like pretty like incredible artists because she's famous. If a picture tells a thousand words, then a Lily Collins tattoo tells 1000 pictures because, oh boy, does every petal, word, name, like line, it all has a meaning and they're all so deep in the cringiest, corniest way. It reminds me of one time when I went on a date with this guy who told me that he had just gotten his first tattoo and I was like, oh cool, what is it? And it was a ship wheel. I forgot what was underneath it. And then there was like a certain amount of birds and like each bird had a meaning and like the wheel had a meaning about like how we never know what direction life will take us or something like that. And there was like waves and the waves meant something. And I remember in that moment being like, we're not going to see each other again. (laughs) I almost feel like you're safer getting a tattoo with no meaning than with deep meaning. Because deep meaning can always change and be less relevant to your life. But no meaning can never, it's always no meaning. If it was stupid, then it'll be stupid forever. Yeah. That's why we both have a tattoo that says stupid. (laughs) (laughs) That'll never go out of style. (laughs) I know this energy so much. It like leaps off the page where she goes, although they may not be everyone's cup of tea, they're part of what makes me unique. And I love them no matter how much of a paradox they make me. She like really loves that. She's like, I know I don't look like I have a bunch of tattoos, but I do. And the tattoos are all of like a ballerina, a moon, a flower. (laughs) She has the words 
love always and forever. And actually in her own handwriting, <laughs> do you know why maybe I relate to this book so much? Cause you have that tattoo too. No, but when I was in fourth grade, I decided that my email and letter sign off would be always and forever Claire. And that's how I signed all of my emails and all of my letters and all of my like <laughs> homework assignments, maybe until high school. <laughs> And I remember thinking it was like the most beautiful. I thought I came up with it. I thought I invented that. I was like, oh, you're signing it thanks or love. I'm signing it always and forever, Claire. And <laughs> signing your homework always and forever. And I and that's why seven times seven equals 49. Always and forever, Claire. And I was obsessed with it. And I thought it was so unique and original. And then one of my, like my best friend in fourth grade, I remember her dad Googled it. And he was like, yeah, there's an album called that. And I remember even at the time being like, why did he have to Google it to know that that wasn't unique? <laughs> I don't know. And I feel like even then I remember being like, yeah, it's just three words. I'm sure someone else has said it. You don't have to find some random album. I don't know. I don't know why he had to really pop my bubble, but I guess it was never and never Claire. <laughs> For now, Claire. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. So this next chapter, don't live a boring life if you can add a little silly into it every once in a while. And this is a chapter about being silly that was like very obviously written from the perspective of someone who like mostly knew adults growing up. The chapter title is Be Silly. It's Attractive. Normal is so boring. I guess I do think we're piercing her heart and getting her blood with this. And that's why I find it so sweet because at her freaky little core is... Let's do the list of things that are so silly and weird about her that she's not going to be embarrassed of anymore. She loves dressing up for Halloween. It's so silly. <laughs> she loves Ren fairs. Yeah. She loves dressing up and like doing Harry Potter stuff. She loves going to Disneyland. A freak. And then she loves going to the flea market. Yeah. She loves thrifting. Oh, she loves collecting stuff. We have to read the list in no particular order of things that she has a deep love of. Silly little things that make me happy. I have a deep love of pickles. I have an obsession with apples. An appreciation for hot tea that's been sitting for hours and is now cold. That's my thing. A fascination with shadows. A tendency to look down instead of up when I'm walking so I can search for a hidden street art. A compulsion to constantly apply a hand sanitizer and hand cream throughout the day. An affection for black and white photography. A habit of jumping in photos. The creation of what I like to call makeup monets after cleaning my face with face wipes at the end of the night. A collection of ticket stubs from movies and concerts and museums. She's just like very MySpace. She loves to dance, even if no one's dancing. When all is said and done, I just love laughing. I love smiling and doing random fun things with my friends and family. I, I, me too! <laughs> I don't know! I agree! I think that's good! I think it's good If too. one more person is having fun and doing random things with their friends and family because of this book, then I think it's a book well published. Totally. Being free is uninhibited and is beautiful. Trying something new is invigorating. Don't live a boring life if you can add a little silly into it every once in a while. Hey, I mean, do you agree or disagree? I agree adding silly every once in a while, even more than that. So this next chapter is about dear old dad. Every one of us wants our parents to tell us how great we are. Every daughter needs to know her dad loves her and truly feel he means it. That's the pull quote. <laughs> A letter to all dads. This is a letter to all dads saying, if you know my dad, can you ask him to call me? <laughs> I really, I mean, again, this chapter broke my heart. It's so earnest and it's so, like everything she does is like, I have done a lot of work and I love who I am today. So if you please, please, 
<laughs> Could you say you love me too? I don't need it, but it's it'd be fine if you don't because I've done the work. But maybe if you're free later, we could get coffee, please. <laughs> and I just... No, it's heartbreaking. It breaks my heart. It's so sincere in a way that I cannot fault. It is as sincere and like not blaming and taking as much responsibility for yourself and doing the work as you can ask anybody to be. I guess that's my thing with her is she has gone to therapy. She's tried her hardest. She doesn't blame anybody but herself. She doesn't blame her mom. She doesn't blame her dad. She's willing to move forward. She wants to honor everybody's feelings. She's like, I've done the work. And if you've done the work too, can you tell me what you've learned? (laughs) And I just think that that's literally all you could ask of anybody. Yeah. She talks about her dad moving away when she was young and how hard that was on her. And I I feel really bad. I mean, that's really sad, especially because this is like one of the reasons to me she isn't. She's obviously a Nepo baby. And I think that a lot of being Phil Collins' daughter has like opened doors for her. But I think that like being known present day as Phil Collins' daughter, she probably sits there and is like, I don't know. You know him as well as I do. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think ironically, the things that have brought her success more have to do with the coping mechanisms of perfectionism that she developed around him abandoning her than the getting in the door. Yeah. Phil Collins seems like a tough guy to know. So basically what happened is when she was six, her parents got divorced. I recently looked it up on Wikipedia because apparently he's like a pretty bad guy. And it seems as though he divorced her via fax, which I love as a throwback. I love an old technology. But then he moved to Switzerland and she just didn't see him for 20 years more or less. And she says, he may still have been alive, but most of the time it felt as if he were completely gone. I knew he loved me, yet he wasn't physically around to tell me. Because my dad was often gone, I never wanted to do anything that would make him stay away even longer. I became extra careful about what I said and how I said it, afraid he'd think I was angry or didn't love him. And the truth is, I was angry. I missed him and wanted him there. His absence was nothing I could control, nor was it something I understood. And that was so painful. I thought I needed to keep all these emotions to myself and never let him know. But that only created this terrible disconnect between us as I got older. Yeah, she talks about how because she was never honest with her dad about her feelings, he never got to know her and learn her tells because she never gave him any truth. And I've realized that many of my deepest insecurities stem from these issues with my dad. It's taken me more than a decade to resolve some of them. Others I'm still resolving. And to finally build up the courage to speak my mind. But then she goes on to say, our dads may not always live up to our expectations and what we think they should do. We may even find that they aren't capable of giving us what we need. In those moments, it's important to remember that recognizing someone's flaws is a gift. It allows us to take a step back and reevaluate how we approach them and how we move forward. It also spares us the agony and pain of blaming ourselves for their actions. Once we've realized this, it's time to process our thoughts and feelings. We must let them know how much we still need them and how it's never too late to right wrongs or change patterns. It can get better for both of us. Yeah, I think that's another big thing in this book is like learning that she cannot take on blame for other people's actions. She really has this deep desire and she says it specifically that she's like, I would like to be a woman in the traditional sense of a caretaker. I want to be the most motherly. I want to be the most feminine. I want to make everything nice and cook for you and take care of you and fix your problems. And that has led her to getting ghosted constantly. Because you know how famously boys call their moms all the time when they're in college and in their 20s. So then she writes this letter to her dad because she's like, for me, writing letters is a little easier to express yourself. Dear dad, no matter how old I get, I'll always be your little girl. I'll always need you. I'll always want you to check in with me no matter how much you think it will annoy me. Even if it does annoy me, I'll secretly love it. When I call you out on something that has upset or annoyed me, please don't mistake my criticism for loving you any less. Don't think that you've done something that can't be fixed. It's not about fixing. It's about moving forward, knowing that things can change. I'm not counting up your past mistakes and keeping score and using them against you. 
I'm calling attention to the way certain actions make me feel and how they can be avoided going forward. She goes on. She says, sometimes I try to be the bigger person to take the high road, but you are the parent here. She says things like, still, it'd be nice to be reminded, especially when we're far apart. A quick call or even a short text or email to say hi every once in a while will do the job. Check in with me. Although it may seem like it's too late, it's not. There's still so much time to move forward and I want to. I'm inviting you to join me. I love you with all my heart more than you'll ever know. And I'm so thankful for you. Love always and forever me, X. I mean, I feel so much pain in her and so much trying to grow. We've read so many memoirists who don't try at all. She reminds me of the Bella Twins. I think I like this book as much as I like the Bella Twins book. I just think it's for a younger age group where the Bella Twins was more towards our age group. And that's why it doesn't register as much. But I did find that this was helpful in that way, that she's been to therapy, she's done the work, and she's sharing the information. Yeah. The next chapter, Harnessing Your Inner Superhero. I liked the concept of it more than I liked the words in it. I will say this concept comes up three or four times. I agree with you that I think there was five to six good things in this book, and then they each got done about three times. Yeah. But to me, it wasn't such a big deal that there was so much fluff because it was still under 200 pages. It took me like two hours to read. And I'm like, yeah, fine. Say it three or four times. <laughs> I mean, it was under 200 pages, and there's three pages, three to four pages of no words between each chapter. <laughs> I like that about a book. (laughs) Anyway, so this chapter, she talks about how she has an inner superhero named Lily, but it's like L-I-L-I, a secret superhero. I don't think you need to characterize the superhero, but the crux of this chapter is that when something happens that sucks and you learn and grow from it, you can view that as like acquiring a new power. And I really think that that can be like a nice way to look at things. She talks about being in that abusive relationship instead of looking back and having regret that she fell for an asshole. Or being embarrassed or disappointed in herself for letting it go on. She looks back on it and says, like, this is where I acquired the power of using my voice to advocate for myself. And I think that that can be a really good way to, like, look back at situations that you aren't necessarily proud of yourself for. Through all these experiences, being ridiculed for my accent, being underestimated as a young person, not speaking up in relationships and overthinking because I don't want to mess up, and what I've learned to say along the way, I've come to realize the sources of weakness can transform into your most important and influential sources of inner strength. Our insecurities and shadows, whether physical or emotional, shouldn't rule our lives or dictate how we view ourselves. Instead, we should harness them to our advantage, use them. After all, they never fully go away. They're parts of ourselves that can bring out the best in us if we just learn how to properly work with them as opposed to against them. Then she talks about being in a relationship with an alcoholic and how she had to really learn to separate herself from the situation because she kind of viewed it as a failure on her part to not help them. And she like has to come to this realization that you can't help someone who is not ready to help themselves. And she talks about it a little bit here that her dad also is an alcoholic. She doesn't really conflate the two. I kind of think she does. And I think that's the part you didn't like. The thing is, it feels like this part is still very much a work in progress where she like knows all the information, but she's still in the process of implementing it. Yeah. And so she says, I don't want to find myself back in a situation where I'm being duped or taken advantage of. Plus, it hurts too much to be invested in someone who would rather master the art of self-destruction than face their problems and admit they need help. And I don't want to take that sentence too seriously because I think she's still like working through information and she was like just trying to wrap up the chapter. But I do think to say like someone who would rather self-destruct than face their problems, I don't think that that's a choice addicts are making. I agree with you. And I, when you called that out, I was like, yeah, that's valid. I do think here that is like a line she took from therapy that makes her feel better when talking about her dad. Because I think in this chapter, she says she's had interventions both with boyfriends and with her dad. It seems like everyone in her family has tried to talk to her dad and they can't help him. 
And so that's what she just has to say to get herself through the night. But I agree. It really shouldn't be applied. If that's what you have to say in a family member situation to get you through it. But if it's a boyfriend, it's just, look, you couldn't help them and that's not your fault, but it's not their fault either. Yeah. I think to say like the choice before them is self-destruct or help yourself. Like they're not choosing self-destruct. They have an addiction. She says a few things that are related to, she talks about dating a guy and not wanting to believe this double life. And she realizes it seemed like they were constantly switching their feelings on and off. And that part was the hardest. The reality was I was just a cover for them. I fit the image of what their parents and friends approved of yet had absolutely no clue about their double life. I feel like I've been there and other think that that's something that women, they get trapped in these relationships because guys use them as proof that their life is good. Like that you think you're helping someone, but in reality, they're like, why would I need to get my life together? Look at my girlfriend. How could I have this like pretty nice girlfriend if my life was so bad? And you're like, well, I'm staying here because I can't abandon you. But by staying there, you are like enabling. Yeah. You're their proof to themselves that it's not that bad. Yeah. And I think she does a really good job of saying like, I'm admitting that I cannot relate to addiction, but I can relate to the experience of being controlled by something that feels out of your control. But I think she's still like very much grappling with what addiction means. Like when she talks about dating this guy who had a problem with alcohol and then they broke up, he got sober and then they got back together like pretty shortly after. And she like couldn't figure out why things weren't better. And I'm just like, well, this person has, it's more than just drinking or not drinking. I think she even says that, but she doesn't, she hasn't internalized it. Yeah, yeah. She can put it on a piece of paper because the therapist has said it to her, but clearly she's not living it and that she's like, well, she says she dated a guy who got obsessed with drinking non-alcoholic beers. Like he was addicted to drinking non-alcoholic beers after he got sober. And I'm like, what does that mean? What do you mean he was addicted to drinking non-alcoholic beers? So that's what I mean is like, she is saying the words, yeah. but I don't think she knows them yet. And so I don't think this chapter is like a problem. I just think very clearly while writing this, she was still kind of figuring it out. We sacrifice our well-being because we believe that we can be the person to save the ones we love. I've been guilty of this fixing mentality over and over, both with boyfriends and family members, which is not a coincidence. I'm drawn to guys like my dad who are creative, sensitive, and somewhat mysterious. The mystery is intriguing and exciting because you never know what mood they'll be in or what they'll do. But the lack of consistency wasn't a good thing for me. Was her dad mysterious or was he mysterious to her? (laughs) I have no idea where my dad is and I haven't in years. Can I say? Very mysterious. Her dad was like well known for being around. There was like jokes about him in the 90s where they're like, how come every time you turn on the channel, like Phil Collins is just like presenting an award or like doing like, why is, why are we always hearing from Phil Collins? Get Phil Collins out of here. I think he was mysterious to her. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. She says, I trusted my gut and how I felt and I never gave up on him. I still haven't. I just realized what was unhealthy for me and then set boundaries. I value myself in a way that meant not compromising my health for someone else. And that isn't selfish or something to feel guilty about. It's smart. You have to love yourself the most and use your voice. So I don't know. I guess I feel like there are these things that if you can't afford the therapy yourself, like she's telling you what her therapist said to her. And I think she is very much an archetype of a type of person. And it's not like the person I am. I'm not a perfectionist and I'm not a nurturer, but I do think there are things that like, women are socialized to be and traps we fall in. I personally like it because I've always been very jealous of perfect girls and been like, uh, they're so perfect and I'll never be them. And I'm like, oh, they're trying very, very hard. But the other thing is I think if you are that woman who's trying very hard would be helpful to see like, like recognize like, and that just hearing these things out loud, it's not your fault. You can put yourself first. You cannot fix him. I know they're, they're all cliche, but they're cliche because they're true. Yeah. So back into her food journey, she's talking about what helped her really improve her relationship with food, and it was discovering cooking. I will say 
this is a filler chapter. This is a story about the time she baked cookies and like a three course meal for her mom. And she had had no idea how to cook. She was 24. It was the first thing she ever made in her life. She goes, I'm 24 years old and I don't even know my way around a kitchen. And it's like, baby, I'm 31. And I cannot tell you what you're talking about when you talked about new utensils. She's like, there's an avocado peeler. And I'm like, oh, what? I'm truly the opposite of a perfectionist in a way that I didn't even know what she was talking about in this section. So she wants to cook for her mom in secret. She finally gets the bug. And she's like, I can't let anybody know because if I fuck up, like that's just too much pressure. She's like, I literally, I had to do this in secret. I went and I bought everything and I Googled everything and I couldn't tell anyone what I was doing all day because nobody could know that I was going to cook because what if it went wrong? And I was like, baby, you put like tomatoes on top of lettuce. There's only so many ways it could go wrong. People build like entire online followings by like kind of not really knowing how to cook and then later knowing how to cook. Yeah, I just was like, and then what? I don't know. It's just, I didn't understand the stakes, but it ends and the food is delicious and she makes quinoa vegan chocolate chip cookies. And now they're her staple and people ask for them all the time. But it helped her be like excited about food and desserts and whatever, because before she had had this like kind of fighting relationship with food, where even though she was no longer starving herself, she was still very specific about food. And then being happy that like she had created a meal for herself and to feed her family and her friends because she loves like nurturing. It like helped her love food instead of accept food. Yeah. I mean, she really like pitched me on cooking. Now I cook and bake because it makes me feel good. It gives me time to myself where I can zone out and be creative. There's a sense of calm I get from following a set of steps, knowing what the end result will be, but also a sense of freedom when I deviate and improvise. Succeeding is special and momentous, but I also quickly came to terms with failing in the kitchen because sometimes you just don't get the proportions right. And what you think is a fabulous idea is actually a major disaster. Again, I would say bad cookies is like not a major disaster. Yeah. It's in those moments I learn from my mistakes and know better for next time. It helps me let go, be more free, and banish feelings of guilt and shame surrounding what I eat. Yeah. So then we get into this chapter that you think is like the reason for the season. Yeah. So she tells this story about talking to a 14-year-old girl that's a family friend and explaining to her kind of what I just said, this idea that this 14-year-old was feeling so bad about herself. She calls her Grace and saying that, you know, she looks at these skinny actresses and these models and she wants to look like them. And at the time, I think this is gone now, but this was at the height of, oh, I never work out. I hate dieting. I eat all the pizza I want. You know, Jennifer Lawrence eating hamburgers on the way to the red carpet. Women saying, oh, I don't work out. I just wake up, whatever. Who has time to work out? I hate it. It was very much this idea that you had to be so thin and toned and perfect with huge boobs and you can't have worked at it or thought about it once. Like, I eat so much. And so this girl felt so bad about herself thinking, well, I don't know why they look like that and I don't. And Lily was like, let me tell you something. I am almost died (laughs) trying to look like this. It does not come easy. It does not come naturally and it's honestly not worth it. And she says the girl felt a lot better. And she's like, I wish when I was her age, people had been honest about what they were going through and how it felt to be on the other side of that pretty picture magazine. And so that's why I guess I like her. Like, is this the most relatable thing in the world? Are these the worst problems anyone's had? No. But I do think she kind of held her own end of the bargain where the things that made her feel bad, she was like, when I'm in a position that I can help others, I will do the most I can. And I think she is doing the most she can to be like, I'm on the other side. And let me tell you, if you think my life is perfect, it's not. I get ghosted a lot. And I really, I don't know, I guess even if you had the most privileged in life in the world, if you have that intention of trying to help other people by being vulnerable and honest, even if your dad's Phil Collins, I don't, I don't hate you for it. I respect it. And I appreciate it. No, I really don't hate her for it. And I really don't think that it's like wrong that she wrote this book. And I agree that this is like an important message to share. I remember this is like a controversial thing, but remember when like the hottest news item of the year was like when people were talking about what Victoria's Secret Angels yes. did to get in shape for the Victoria's Secret fashion show. And now people look back on it and they're like, that was the most toxic shit I've ever read. I actually, that really helped me 
because like reading that they were going insane and like not drinking water in order to look good on the runway, I was like, oh, that's kind of nice to know. I think obviously what Victoria's Secret Angels were doing to their body was crazy, but to hear that what they were doing was so intense in a world of like Rory Gilmore's eating like a whole pizza and a bag of red vines and like a second pizza and then Chinese food and like still being so little, it like was really helpful for me to be like, oh no, that's not real. It's the, it's the no water thing. (laughs) Maybe if I'd only shared more at Grace's age, I wouldn't have felt like I was going through all these things alone. Choosing how and when to admit my truths now allows me to take back the power that my insecurities had once stolen. I will no longer let them dictate how I live my life. After all, bottling up my secrets never did any good. If I just spilled them to someone I trusted, I could have felt more connected and supported. And that's what it's all about. That is what it's all about. Okay, so then the next chapter is really called Talk More, Create Connections, and that's exactly what she just said. Yeah. Okay, so now we're getting to, like, her early career. So before she became an actress, she tried a couple of different things. When she was 15 years old, she decided to become a journalist because she didn't feel that there were stories out there for teen girls by teen girls. It's so funny. In the bio on the book jacket, I saw that she calls herself a journalist, and I was like, what the fuck journalism does she do? And then I got to this chapter, and I'm like, oh, she thinks writing my favorite place to hang out in LA is journalism. I'm like, okay, so she's not a journalist. Right. So she decided to become a journalist when she was 15 years old because she loves sharing stories and connecting with people. And she like pitched to a couple of different major publications, including LUK. Well, what she claims is that she had this idea in her kitchen and she told her mom. So she went to every magazine in the back and looked up phone numbers and called assistants and called everyone she could to just did, you know, research and cold called everybody and got the door slammed in her face except for one person at LUK. And I'm like, bitch. Yeah. No freaking way. I mean, yes, freaking way. I'm sure a bunch of people were like, no, we don't really want that. And then one person at LUK said, okay, that sounds cool. But they did not say cool because you were like a saucy teen with gumption. They said yes because they were like, oh, we are LUK. Phil Collins's daughter wants to write a column that could be something people click on. And then the magazine still folded a couple months later. I don't even know that they were trying to pull the Phil Collins' daughter thing. But I remember growing up, do you remember all those like Teen Vogue? This girl has a really cool bedroom. And then later they were all like Lena Dunham and Jemima Kirk. And yeah, I mean, it's just very connected people. They were just things that they could hand to their famous friends, you know? Right. This is, I think, what people get so mad at Nepo Babies about is thinking that they just like made every phone call in the book. And it's like, yes, but the reason your phone call got answered is because of your last name. A lot of people made phone calls. Well, before your phone call, your mom made a phone call and said, hey, my daughter's going to call you. Do you. Could you see if there's anything there? Or your yeah. mom's friend said, oh, my friend's daughter's about to call. She's also Phil Collins' daughter. If you help her out, maybe he'll give you Tarzan tickets. And so like while in high school, she wrote for... L-U-K. She wrote for Cosmo Girl. She wrote for Los Angeles Times Magazine. She did a couple online pieces for Teen Vogue. And she's like, I had quite a little journalism career. And then she decides to start trying to pitch talk shows because originally it was her dream to be a teenage talk show host. And she feels that she was shot down for being, they didn't take her seriously because she's young. And I think they shot her down because her ideas weren't like practical. She wanted to do The View, but for teens. Yeah. And she did like end up hosting a couple of Nickelodeon segments and doing all this stuff. And she's like, it's because I like waltzed into those meetings with a pitch deck. And it's like, well, you're very pretty. And your dad asked. 
She then goes on to be like, but I got rejected all these things. And the point of this chapter is, this is where my everything happens for a reason mantra makes all the difference. The way I see it, if the things back then had worked out how I wanted, I wouldn't be where I am as an actor. But that realization didn't come easy. It took a little time, some self-doubt, and a lot of frustration to get there. After I landed my first couple of acting jobs, I was able to look back and acknowledge that I wouldn't have gone down this path if the other one had been clear. Because the more an audience saw the real Lily as a TV personality, the harder it would have been for them to believe me as a character in films and shows. And so she's like, it all worked out. She talks about being devastated over not getting an Abercrombie and Fitch campaign. And then she talks about being devastated over not getting Jenny Humphrey on Gossip Girl. Can I say, I wish she had gotten Jenny Humphrey on Gossip Girl. And you didn't watch Gossip Girl. I find that so weird. It's like really hard for me to believe every time I hear it. But I really feel like, obviously, Taylor Momsen was a better young Jenny Humphrey. But I do think Jenny Humphrey becoming punk and then leaving the show really harmed the show. And I wish that Lily Collins had just gotten the role because she would have Jenny Humphrey to the top. And then, I mean, she talks about little things that are, none of these are bad choices. That's so funny. She's like, I couldn't decide between NYU and USC, but then when I went with USC, it was easier for me to take the role in the blind side. So it was all good. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's because those were all good. They were all like good choices. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like I chose this and a bad thing happened because of it. You're like, well, I had lots of good options in front of me and I chose a good one and good things continued to happen. And it's like, well, yeah. But the thing is you compare it to an Alec Baldwin who is a 60 year old man who was like one time I took a million dollar movie over a play and it ruined my career and I never came back. Oh, yeah. Even further than that, he goes, I was raised in a poor family. And so my grades in high school weren't that good. What would have happened if I'd had good grades? I mean, I know it feels so little, but my bar is pretty low. And I just think that mentality, even if it's being applied to a woman of immense privilege, and it's very easy for her to apply it, I can't falter. There's nothing more I could have wished from her. Yeah. There's some people you're like, you're rich, you're famous, you have a great career. What are you so unhappy about? And she has this book and it's mostly like, I'm not unhappy. I tried really hard and I appreciate what I have. And I'm like, Okay, well then what else do I want from you, really? Like, what else could I ask? That's true. I forgot that there's this whole component about she applies it to relationships too. I never like referring to them as failed because I learned so much from them, gaining a better sense of who I am and what I need and what I can give to someone else. It can take knowing what you don't want or should ever put up with to value someone who treats you amazingly and to appreciate what it feels like to be with the very best version of yourself. So I don't know. I just do think you don't have to feel regret. You just, all you can do is grow. And this is where she does a better job of wording her superhero chapter. She says, we wonder what we did to deserve so much pain. We wonder what the point of it all is, but finding some kind of deeper meaning is the only way to bring light into the darkest times in our lives. That's nice. The next chapter. Soul searching, but soul is the capital of Korea. The universe gives us nuggets of inspiration every once in a while during our most trying times. And if we're open and willing to see, they can prompt immense growth. <laughs> it's true, though. It's not not true. So here she talks about filming Okja, which I've never seen, but I have heard great things about. And I was shocked to hear she was in that. So she made Okja and was finishing this book right after doing To the Bone, which is a very controversial film about eating disorders that she had to lose weight with like a nutritionist and a very specific regimen to play the part of. And she says she found it extremely therapeutic. And this is the problem, I think, with eating disorder discussions is that it's such a comparative disease that I really think it takes immense care to make content about it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not mad at her if it was therapeutic for her. But I think that if it was therapeutic for her, that like really does not mean it was helpful for anyone else. And I think if you look at most of the discourse around that movie, which I haven't seen because everyone said it is like 
really problematic. It was like really bad for people. I believe that. And I'm sure it was bad for her. And I don't think it was good for her to take on a movie where she had to re-give herself an eating disorder. Yeah. I think it's one thing to like relive it mentally, but to have to physically do that to yourself, there's no way that was healthy, especially because she says very specifically in this book, it was never halfway in, halfway out for her. She says I was either like in a full-blown eating disorder or not. And so that means she was agreeing, like maybe I'll put myself back into a full-blown eating disorder to do this movie. But that's where this book ends. She just says she went to therapy and has done a lot of work. I'd listened to one of those addict exes, but I never knew that I had one. She says, then something unexpected happened. Through all this healing and self-reflection, I came to meet the voice of my own addiction. I'd listened to those of my addict exes, but never knew that I had one myself and that it was loud. It had been controlling too, telling me what to do and influencing my actions. That was terrifying. The more work I did on myself, the more I was able to separate the addiction's voice from the true voice inside me. And now that I've turned up the volume on my own voice and turned down that of my addiction, it's helped me understand the importance of finding a healthy balance. She ends it saying, I know that this has always sounded incredibly cheesy to me, but it's true now more than ever. I'm not getting any younger. And the sooner I accept my story for all that it is and let go of the shame, regrets, and fears surrounding my experiences, the sooner I can just live, love, and be loved. Love always and forever. Lily. Love that. Here's what I will say. Okay. Who is she? She is a conventionally attractive pretty, super rich, connected, Nepo baby white girl who lives in LA. For all that she is, I think she did the best that she could. I don't know. I just think that she did her best and tried her hardest. She can't help that her struggles aren't that hard. But I think she dug as deep as she could. And that's all I really ask of anybody. It's like one of those things where I don't think that this was a bad book for what it was, but I wonder why it was. And I know, I know why. Like I know we've discussed that it could be like, you know, her thinking like, wow, if only someone had told me this when I was younger, I could be the person to tell someone this when they were younger. She's super high achieving. She's achievement oriented. I think she thinks of herself as bookish. She had come from this quote unquote journalism background. When I read that, even though I don't give it credit, I was like, oh, that makes sense why she thinks of herself as a writer. She wants to share stories. Yeah. I do see how she got here versus a Chriselle and Alec Baldwin. I do understand why this book exists from, and I think that this book exists because she wanted it to exist. Not that somebody came and said, here's a cash out. This to me was not a cash grab and it read that way. It was not a cash grab. I really think she sat down and said, I have a story to tell, but I do feel very critical of any 28 year old who is like, I have got a story that must be told today. I think the fact that she was like, this must get out of my system now. Like I do think she had valid things to talk about. And overall, I agree, like most of her problems are not that bad. And so this was the best that she was going to do. But I also am like, why did she do this then? I think there's been maybe one memoir that we've read from someone who was like under 34 that did it for us. Jeanette McCurdy, probably. Oh, Jeanette. She's talking towards the end of this book about like, how do I wrap up my story? And it's like, you don't, you're not wrapping up your story. You're barely even starting your story relax, dude, save these in a little Google draft folder and like finish them. Okay. I'm not going to try to change your mind, but I will say this. I don't think this is a memoir. Yeah. It's a nonfiction, like personal book of essays. I would say what she's doing here is not that different than like what we try to do in Worm to the Wise. Yeah. And so that's why I'm like, we're 30 and 31. Yeah. We're not that different than 28. But I've never tried to be like, let me wrap up my story. Let me like put it in. I don't think she says, let me wrap up my story. Yeah, she does. She says, I have no idea how I'm supposed to wrap this all up. How I'm supposed to write my own ending. But I think she means literally to this book. Because in her life, she goes, this story is going to be part of a much larger one. I don't know. I guess I feel like people are always in like such a hurry. I don't I don't feel like it's the same as Worm to the Wise at all. Because that's just like a monthly installment where we're like still kind of moving 
this is like, I don't know. I feel like I still put like weight to deciding to put something in print and it should feel like a little bit more permanent to me. Yeah. And this felt very like article-y. I think I would have respected like the three essays that I liked if they had been published in Elle or whatever magazines she works with. I think I would have liked it more that way. Well, there you go. Okay. This week on the Patreon, we will be bringing you guys more Prince Harry book. Everything that we didn't get to on the episode, we are getting to on the Patreon. We are so excited. We love you guys so much. And we cannot wait to see you on the road and in the book club and on the Patreon. Yeah. Love you guys. Thank you to Joanna CV. I am putting this review on my resume. Thank you to Ayo Debt. Ayo, I appreciate you endlessly. Thank you to Ness. I am going to travel to Scotland just to find you and say thank you. Thank you to Mara Berry. I appreciate you very much. Thank you to Teej Beach. This review is even better than what I imagine a sloppy beach feels like. Thank you to AEI Hab. I have never seen a more beautiful review. Thank you to Little History. This is the only piece of history I've ever wanted anyway. That's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I adore you.